1 John 2, starting at verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Notice John said it was the last hour. That phrase literally means the last hour it is, causing it to be an emphatic statement. John made that statement at about 90 A.D. So the question is, how can it still be the last hour some 19 and a half centuries after John said it was the last hour? The answer is simple. God never said how long that last hour would last. God never said how long that last hour would last, and it has lasted a long time. In a technical sense, the last hour started at Jesus' birth, and it continues on and ends at his return. The last hour started at his birth at Bethlehem and continues and ends at his return. So the last hour has lasted more than 20 centuries. But most prophetical experts agree that we are probably now at the last part of that last hour, meaning that Jesus' return could be soon. But we should be careful. We shouldn't set dates. Columbus was a controversial character, but most people don't know he predicted the end of the world. The inference was that Jesus would return at that time, Columbus authored a book called the Book of Prophecies, and in that publication, he said the world would end in 1656 A.D. Columbus was wrong, as all date setters are also wrong. If someone sets a date for Jesus to return, then we can be certain, we can be sure that Jesus will not return on that date. Then there was a 19th century preacher named William Miller, born 1782, died 1849. Mr. Miller was a false prophet, and people, the people attracted to him became known as Millerites or Adventists. The word Advent means the arrival of a notable person or event. Um, Jesus' birth at Bethlehem was the first Advent. That's the reason the Christmas season is sometimes called the Advent season. We are now waiting for Jesus' second Advent, meaning Jesus' return to earth. Um, those Millerites focused on that second Advent, so the name others assigned to them was Adventist. Mr. Miller predicted Jesus would return between March 21, 1843, in March 21, 1844. After Jesus didn't materialize on those dates, Miller recalculated and set another date for October 22nd, 1844. After Jesus was another no-show, that last prediction became known as the Great Disappointment. As a result, most Millerites disbanded, except for some that attempted to rationalize that Jesus had actually returned, um, but in a spiritual sense and not in a literal sense. One of those committed Millerites was a teenager named Ellen G. Harmon. 
she had a vision that she said vindicated Reverend Miller's prediction. It didn't. She was disillusioned. No. She would go on to write or to have some 2,000 prophetic visions. And in 1846, she married a gentleman named James White. And so Ellen G. White became the prophetess for a new religious group called the Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist, um, as the name implies, are Sabbatarians. And since the Jewish Sabbath is observed on the seventh day of the week, meaning Saturday, Adventists attend church on Saturday and not Sunday. Uh, Prophetess Ellen G. White said that Sunday worship, as we are doing this morning, is the same as receiving the mark of the beast mentioned in Revelation 13. Fortunately, most Seventh-day Adventists would now reject that foolishness, and most of them are rejecting more and more of her prophecies. Adventists also encourage vegetarianism and discourage eating meat, something Adventists call flesh food, piece of trivia, John Harvey Kellogg was a doctor and uh, a Seventh-day Adventist from Battle Creek, Michigan. He wanted to manufacture a vegetarian alternative to the average breakfast diet that often consists of ham and eggs, sausage and eggs, or bacon and eggs. So Mr. Kellogg created a breakfast cereal most of us have eaten. It's called Kellogg's Corn Flakes. But as a denomination, Seventh-day Adventism came into existence from a miscalculation of Jesus' return. There's a movie coming out this month I'm anxious to see called The Jesus Revolution. It's the historical account of the Jesus People movement that originated in Southern California in the 1960s. It focuses on one of that movement's earlier converts, a man named Greg Laurie. Greg pastors a megachurch in Riverside and uh, is Harvest Crusades evangelist. It also focuses on the formation of the Calvary Chapel network of churches that were a part of that Jesus People movement. Chuck Smith, pastor of the original Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, he inherited a 25-member congregation, and it blew up into thousands and thousands. And from that single congregation emerged other Calvary chapels that have become some of this nation's largest and most influential congregations. Chuck Smith died in 2013, but his contribution to evangelicalism is incalculable. And that's not an overstatement. He was mightily used of God. Pastor Chuck was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He made mistakes as we all do. Chuck was unwilling to set a specific exact date for Christ's return, but he did announce once that he anticipated Jesus to return before the end of 1981. He based that on a misunderstanding of the parable of the fig tree from Mark 13. After Jesus didn't return in 1981, Chuck learned his lesson and never made another even vague prediction after that, and he rejected date setting altogether, as he should have. As I said, he was a phenomenal man. The next date set was from a more former NASA engineer named Edgar C. Wisenet. 
Edgar C. Wisenet, he published a book that sold more than four and a half million copies. That book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It didn't happen. Probably the most notorious recent date setter was a Christian radio broadcaster from the San Francisco Bay Area named Harold Camping. Mr. Camping had left the Christian Reformed denomination and he started teaching some strange doctrines. Among them, he taught that all churches had become apostate and should be abandoned. He encouraged people to just listen to his teaching on the radio and ignore the church. That's the stuff cults are made from. He first predicted Jesus would return on September 6, 1994. I had some interesting conversations. I was in the Bay Area, had just arrived uh, from Kansas City at that time, and I had some conversation with some of his radical radio listeners who just insisted, insisted uh, Jesus would return on that date. Um, I don't know, I, Henri, I said, here's my number, call me on September 7th, pretty sure we're both going to be here. We were, but no one called. I'm not sure why. I wasn't going to totally embarrass them just some. Uh, September 6th was a no-go. So Camping then predicted Jesus would return on May 21, 2011. That didn't happen either. Then some predicted Jesus would return in 2015 during a series of blood-red moons. A blood-red moon describes a lunar eclipse because of the sometimes reddish color of the moon during that phenomena. There were four lunar eclipses during 2014 and 15. And some prophetical teachers suggested that the unique timing of those eclipses would fulfill end-time prophecies from the biblical books of Joel and Revelation and would conclude with Jesus' return. That was another epic failed prophecy. Then others predicted Jesus would return during the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles, held from October 4th through 11th in 2017, 2017, was considered a Jewish year of Jubilee. That idea came from some calculations a rabbi named Judah ben Samuel made eight centuries ago in 1217 AD. That was another bogus date. Date setters are a dime a dozen. People need to stop setting dates for Jesus' return because those that do are discrediting themselves and discrediting Christianity. Notice Mark 13, in commenting on his return, Jesus said this, verse 32, But of that day and hour, no one knows. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, meaning himself, but only the Father. Verse 33, Take heed and watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Notice, you do not know when the time is. Question, if Jesus was and still is God, and if God is omniscient, omniscience means all knowledge, then how could Jesus, being omniscient as God, not know the time of his return? He said he didn't know. How could Jesus, as God, being omniscient, having all knowledge as God, not know the time of his return? How was that possible? 
The answer is because after Jesus became human, he restricted or limited the use of some of his divine attributes, including his omniscience. After Jesus became human at Bethlehem, he restricted the use of some of his divine attributes, including his omniscience. That's found in the kenosis passage from Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, um, one of my favorite passages. In verse 7, it reads that in becoming human, Jesus, quote, made himself of no reputation. A better translation of that is that he emptied himself. The theological word is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. Kenosis comes from that phrase. He made himself of no reputation. Uh, Kenosis means a self-emptying. In becoming human at Bethlehem, Jesus didn't empty himself of being God. He never ceased to be God. But he did voluntarily empty himself of certain attributes and certain characteristics that he possessed as God. Meaning he sometimes restrained himself and didn't use some of those abilities he possessed as God. And omniscience was one of those. During his time on earth, Jesus was completely subservient to God the Father in heaven. He did what the Father said to do. He didn't do what the Father said not to do. So he didn't exercise his omniscience unless the Father instructed him to. There were times he did exercise that attribute, and then there were other times he didn't. And this is one of those times. During his time on this earth, Jesus voluntarily restricted the usage of his divine omniscience um, concerning the exact timing of his return. That's the reason he could make this statement that he didn't know. He did not know the date he would return. Jesus is now in heaven, and he's not restricted, and so he knows exactly when he's scheduled to return. So what part of, but of that day and that hour, no one knows, don't date setters understand? We shouldn't set dates. Nothing, though, would excite me more than if Jesus returned today. I said nothing would excite me more than if Jesus returned today. Apparently, I'm the only one that's excited. Sheesh. need to be alive, people. Okay. We should understand two things about the exact timing of Jesus' return. And his return is in two phases. Uh, The rapture phase, and then after the tribulation period, the revelation phase, the rapture is private. Jesus descends from heaven, stops in the atmosphere above the earth, snatches out, raptures off the earth all Christians, brings them to heaven. After the tribulation period, which is an 84-month period, Jesus returns to the earth with Christians And um, it's an exciting time. Uh, He sets up his kingdom after he defeats Satan and his armies at Armageddon. And uh, all all sorts of things happen then. But we're, we're primarily discussing the rapture, the first phase of his second coming. Notice, Scripture nowhere encourages us to even attempt to discover the exact timing 
of Jesus' return. Nowhere in Scripture are we encouraged to even attempt to discover the exact timing of Jesus' return. Notice Acts 1. Verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. This was just before Jesus' ascension into heaven. He had been crucified. He had been buried. He was resurrected from the dead. He hung around to, uh, to uh, authenticate his resurrection. And now he's about to ascend into heaven. And he said this. Therefore, when they, Jesus' disciples, had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, the ancient Jewish people were anticipating a Messiah God had promised them. Messiah means the anointed ruler. Uh, those that were anointed rulers were kings. So Jesus is the anointed ruler from God to act as king. So the Jewish people were anticipating uh, the promised Messiah to returned to earth, set up an actual, literal, messianic kingdom on earth. There can be no kingdom unless there is a king. So these men were wanting to know when Jesus, this messianic Jesus, would return to set up that kingdom. Verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus basically said to his disciples, uh, you don't need to know that. You just don't need to know that. We don't need to know the timing of his return. So we need to stop prognosticating. Second, Scripture gives us no explicit data we can even use to determine the exact timing of Jesus' return. I understand there are prophetical signs that precede his return. I understand that. But there's no explicit data uh, from Scripture we can use to determine the exact date, timing of his return. We as Christians need to be content not knowing the date Jesus returns. We, We need to be okay with not knowing. Let's do what Elizabeth Mills suggested we do in a song she published in 1837. That song said, let's work until Jesus comes. Remember three words, wait, watch, and work. And that's what we are called on to do. Then starting in verse 18, John mentions the subject of Antichrist and Antichrist. Verse 18 little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The specific word Antichrist is used just five times in the entire New Testament. Four times it is used in 1 John, and once more it is used in 2 John. Meaning John is the only biblical author to actually use the word antichrist. And he uses that word to mean three different but related things. First, he uses that word to mean the spirit of antichrist. Don't miss this. The spirit of antichrist. 1 John 4 verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of of the Antichrist, meaning the confession that Jesus has not come in human form, that is the confession or spirit of Antichrist. You have heard was coming and is now already in the world. 
The word antichrist consists of two words, anti and then Christ, or Messiah, since Christ means Messiah. The prefixed anti can mean two things. One, anti can mean against. Against. An antichrist is someone that is against Christ. We use that prefix anti in conversation all the time. Uh, as there are things each of us are anti. There are things each of us are against. For this afternoon and this afternoon only, I'm anti-Philadelphia Eagles. I'm very anti. Um, these Eagle fans are bugging me. Eagle fans are chanting, fly, Eagles, fly. No, 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 no. Not fly, Eagles, fly. Die, Eagles, die. That's, <laughs> that's where I'm at. Anyway, the second prefix anti can mean instead of or a substitute for instead of or a substitute for antichrist also means something or someone that is instead of Christ someone or something that is a substitute for Christ now notice the definition the spirit of antichrist is not a person but an attitude an attitude that is either against Christ or is substituting something for Christ, or both. Then second, John uses the word antichrist, plural, to describe counterfeit Christ. This is the plural usage of the word. Verse 18, even now many antichrist, plural, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Notice the definition. An antichrist is an actual person that has accepted this antichrist attitude. He is either against Christ, or he is substituting something for Christ, or both. Example, in a technical sense, atheists and secular progressives are, or should be, categorized as antichrist because those groups are categorically against Christ. Communists are antichrist because communism substitutes the state for Christ. One of the end time signs is the increasing number of these antichrists. In his famous discourse from the Mountain of Olives, called his Olivet Discourse, Jesus himself said that in the end times there would be a proliferation of false Christ. False Christs are those people that have substituted themselves for the authentic Christ. One more time, false Christs are those persons that have substituted themselves for the authentic Christ. Matthew 24, starting at verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you. Essentially, he said, don't be deceived. Verse 5, For many, not some, many, will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. In the end times, people are going to claim and announce, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. In the past century, there have been more than 1,100, 1,100 religious personalities that have claimed to be Christ. There's a sinister and maniacal mass murderer, Charles Manson, who considered himself to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. He would sometimes reenact the crucifixion as part of his brainwashing technique to convince his devotees he was Jesus Christ. Korean evangelist Sung Myung Moon and his unification movement 
Uh, his followers were called Moonies. Some of us remember Moonies running around airports selling flowers. He is now deceased, but he believed he was the return of Christ. Jim Jones from the People's Temple in San Francisco, that congregation was a member of the Disciples of Christ denomination uh, and was never expelled or uh, put out from that denomination, even though he was a, a heretic of the highest order. Uh, he was a man that in Guyana facilitated the mass suicide of 909 people. 303 of them were children. David Koresh, who founded the cult called the Branch Davidian Church, his followers called him, get this, the Lamb of God. He died in a government siege on his group's compound in Waco, Texas, there is now a false Christ from the Philippines. He is alive, and his name is Apollo Quibaloy. Apollo Quibaloy, he claims he is, quote, the appointed son of God. And he also said, get this, he also said he is, quote, the owner of the universe. <laughs> wow. Uh, circus promoter... P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. That's the reason this fraud has attracted more than six million people to his cult. Next notice, John uses the word antichrist singular to describe the ultimate singular tribulation period person scripture calls antichrist. There are antichrists, plural, around us. There is, though, one um, that is the ultimate uh, end times person Scripture calls Antichrist. Verse 18, one more time, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the, the Antichrist, singular, is coming. Notice John has distinguished between Antichrist plural and Antichrist singular. Notice the definition. The Antichrist singular is the public, in time, ultimate false Messiah that tries to establish a one world government that he rules over so he can then annihilate Israel and all Christians. This ultimate in time false Messiah is a globalist and he tries to establish a one world government that he rules over so he can then annihilate Israel and all Christians. This prophetic antichrist both acts against the true Christ and he passes himself off as the true Christ. He's the ultimate counterfeit antichrist. Understand that one of Satan's strategies is to counterfeit. If Satan succeeds at counterfeiting something that God is, or Satan succeeds at counterfeiting something that God does, then Satan can deceive people into accepting his fraudulent substitute. This prophetic imposter doesn't sign his name Antichrist. He operates under an alias, but his true identification will be this end-time Antichrist. Longtime professor at Liberty University and prophetical expert Dr. Ed Heinsohn, I believe he has three PhDs, a brilliant man. I've met him, spoke to him. Um, he said there are three different concepts essential to have a correct understanding of eschatological matters. 
eschatological, meaning prophetic matters. First, there are facts. Facts. God has revealed certain undeniable prophetical facts. Fact. Jesus is returning to this earth. Fact. There will be a time of intense trouble on earth at the end of this age. Fact. There is a resurrection prophetical resurrection of bodies from the dead of both those that have salvation and those that don't. Fact, Jesus wins the ultimate end-time battle between himself and Satan, and on and on and on. There are established facts in Scripture. Second, there are, or there is conjecture. Conjecture. Prophetical facts tell us just so much. And nothing more. So after that, we are forced to assume some things to find missing information. Assuming is conjecture. Example, we assume Russia invades Israel during the tribulation period. We assume that contingent on how we interpret Gog and Magog from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We assume Russia invades modern Israel, but we aren't 100% certain of that. Uh, That's conjecture to some extent, because it's not an absolute established fact. Now, if you talk to Tony, Tony will tell you, no, it's not 100%, it's 99.999% an established fact. And I feel strong about that also. But we do know Russia is not our friend, and Russia is no friend to the modern state of Israel. And that part isn't conjecture. Third, there are guessing games. Guessing games. These are guesses based on previous facts and are assuming things. Conjecture. Example, it is absolute foolishness to attempt to guess the identification of the prophetic Antichrist. We cannot know with any degree of certainty his ethnicity. Some believe he is Jewish. Some believe, no, he's a Gentile. We cannot know where he originates from. Some believe he originates from the revived Roman Empire in Europe. Some believe he originates from the Middle East. We cannot determine if he is alive at this moment. And contrary to the hundreds of suggested names, it's just a guessing game. First century Christians were convinced Nero was Antichrist. He wasn't. And hundreds of names have been suggested since then. It's just a guessing game. No one knows. And from a personal perspective, we shouldn't care. Because as a Christian, if if, if my eschatological position is correct, the rapture happens before Antichrist is revealed and we're gone, so we won't even be here, and we so we really shouldn't care. Why do we spend so much time debating and discussing Antichrist? We need to focus our time and our energies on Jesus Christ. In this text, John argues that Antichrist, plural... Not the Antichrist singular. Antichrist plural are identifiable through two two principal things. One is Antichrist abandon the church. These people abandon the church. Verse 19. They, these Antichrists from verse 18, 
the preceding verse, they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Notice this word us is mentioned five times in this one verse. And the consensus is that this us is a direct reference to the church. It couldn't be anything else other than the church. Not the church in a gigantic, generic sense, but the individualized, localized form of the church as this congregation is. Uh, Verse 19 from the New Living Translation reads, These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. This verse is first addressed to Antichrist, but this is also applicable to all spiritual defectors. These Antichrists are often part of the organized church, but were never actual authentic believers and are there, are only there, to sabotage the congregation through their false teaching and confusion. So over time, these Antichrists exit the established church. If these Antichrists that once professed to be Christians had actually possessed authentic salvation, then those people would have remained in the church. But the fact these people have left the church is evidence that these people were never an actual part of the church. These people had never experienced authentic salvation. These people were Christians in name only. These people were spiritual counterfeits. These people were spiritual tares that had infiltrated the spiritual wheat. So, second, Antichrist abandon the church. Second, Antichrist reject biblical Christological teaching. Antichrist reject, categorically reject, biblical Christological teaching. Notice verse 22. Who is a liar? He tells us. But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is Messiah. The person that denies that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that person is a liar. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The first test that we should use to authenticate someone's commitment to sound biblical teaching The first test to evaluate someone's doctrinal position is the Christological test. Notice the definition. Christology is a branch of theology that addresses the person, nature, and work of Jesus the Christ. This is is theological. This is Christology is the branch of theology that addresses the person, nature, and work of Jesus who is the Christ. The person that denies who Jesus is, according to this, fails the Christological test. And he has the spirit of Antichrist or is an Antichrist himself. How often have we heard the statement, 
but, but don't most religions worship the same God? Oprah believes that. Don't we worship the same God? No, we do not. We do not worship the same God. Which God we worship is contingent entirely on our Christological position. We cannot, cannot reject the biblical Jesus and still worship the one and true Judeo-Christian God. If we mischaracterize the Son and teach He is something else other than who He is, then we have also denied His Father God in heaven. Listen to the correct and biblical Christological position. This is on the note sheet. The historic Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. The triune Godhead consists of three co-equal and co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, Yeshua, and God the Holy Spirit. Some 20 centuries ago, Jesus, as God, also became human through being born from a virgin, a teenager named Mary. That birth resulted in him being both fully God and fully man. Notice, both fully God and fully man from his birth. Those two natures were joined together, not mixed together, meaning that from his birth on, Jesus would forever be God in human form. We use the word incarnation. Uh, incarnation means enfleshment. God became human flesh at his birth. Jesus was crucified as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Why was the tomb borrowed? The tomb was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea because Jesus only needed it for three days and three nights. He didn't need it long term. He was buried in that tomb and then literally resurrected from the dead. After revealing himself to hundreds of eyewitnesses over a 40-day period to authenticate his resurrection, Jesus literally ascended into heaven where he is at this moment. It is for these reasons that salvation, including forgiveness from sins and a ticket to heaven, is found in Jesus, in Hebrew, Yeshua, and only Jesus. And it is that same Jesus that is scheduled to return. That is biblical Christology. And any definition of Christ that doesn't match that summation statement is a counterfeit Jesus. So the question is, does the content of what someone believes, does the content of what someone teaches, is that agreeable with biblical Christology? 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. <laughs> it means don't be naive, don't be gullible. Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Verse 3, notice, and every spirit that does not, that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. John, in particular here, 
is specifically addressing Gnosticism and Gnostics. From an earlier lesson, remember one reason 1 John was written was to contradict a false teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was one of the first heresies. It was common in the first three centuries of the church. Gnosticism taught that on earth Jesus seemed to have a human bodily form. But according to Gnosticism, that was an illusion. Because Gnostics said he didn't actually have a human form. Gnostics argued that Jesus did not come in human flesh, using the language John just used. That doesn't pass the Christological test. If someone contradicts who Jesus claimed to be, then that person has the spirit of Antichrist or is an Antichrist himself. Let's examine some other Christological ideas from some other religious groups, groups other than Christianity. Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus was not and is not God. He was Jehovah God's first and finest creation, meaning Jesus was a created being just as we are created beings and Jesus was not the creator God. And before his birth on earth, he was Michael, the archangel in heaven. On earth, he was a perfect man and died on a stake, not a cross, a stake. He was resurrected only as a spirit because his body was destroyed. In complete contradiction to the Christological statement we just read about Jesus. Mormonism. Mormonism teaches there are countless gods and goddesses because Mormonism is polytheistic. And Jesus is a separate God from the Father called Elohim. He was originally created as a spirit child on a distant planet, meaning Elohim had numerous goddess wives on this planet. He had endless celestial sex and produced all these spirit children. Jesus was one of them. Lucifer was one of his spirit brothers, I might add. Jesus received his body through an actual sexual union between Elohim, who came to earth, materialized, manifest himself, and had sexual relations with Jesus' mother, Mary. So there was no, according to Mormonism, no virgin birth. Jesus was married to multiple women. He was a polygamist. And his death on the cross doesn't provide full atonement for all sin. We mentioned Sung Myung Moon earlier. His church, the Unification Church, teaches that Jesus was a perfect man, but not God. Jesus was not born of a virgin. He was instead the son of Zechariah. Zechariah, in the New Testament, was married to Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth had a son named John, John the Baptist. And according to uh, the Unification Church, Jesus was also born of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, and the return of Jesus was fulfilled in the Korean Sung Myung Moon, who was said to be superior to Jesus and will finish Jesus' mission. Christian science. According to Christian science, Jesus was not the Christ, but a mortal man who manifested the Christ idea. Now, according to Christian science, Christ means perfection, not 
necessarily the Messiah. Jesus was not God, and God would never become man. Jesus didn't die on a cross, so he was never resurrected from the dead, and he will never literally return to this earth. Scientology. I assume most people understand the poster child for this mind science cult is actor Tom Cruise. Jesus, according to Scientology, is almost never mentioned uh, in their groups, but Jesus was not the creator, nor was he an operating thetan. An operating thetan is one that is in control of supernatural powers. According to them, Jesus wasn't an operating theat, and Jesus did not die for sins. Judaism teaches Jesus is either an extremist false messiah or a good but martyred Jewish rabbi, rabbi meaning teacher. Actually, most Jewish people don't consider Jesus, almost never mention Jesus, except for the Messianic Jewish community. Messianic Jews are Jewish people that have acknowledged, accepted that Jesus was the promised Messiah and have received him as such and as their Savior. So except for the Messianic Jewish community, Jewish people do not believe Jesus was the promised Messiah or the Son of God. Now, Orthodox Jews do believe the true Messiah will restore the Jewish kingdom and eventually rule the earth, as we do, and to Israel's absolute shock that true Messiah will be Jesus, the one their ancestors crucified centuries ago. New Age teaches that Jesus is not the true one God or the one true God. He is not a savior, but instead he's a spiritual model and guru and is now an ascended master. He was a New Ager himself who tapped into divine power in the same sense that anyone can. Some believe he went east to India or Tibet and learned mystical truths. He also wasn't resurrected from the dead. Instead, he rose to a higher spiritual realm. Islam teaches Jesus was one of the most respected of more than 124,000 prophets from the Islamic God Allah. But... He was inferior to the ultimate prophet Muhammad. Jesus was born of a virgin. Most people don't know. Islam admits Jesus was born of a virgin. He was sinless and a great performer of miracles, but he wasn't God's son, meaning Jesus is not God, and God is not Jesus, and he wasn't crucified for sins. Actually, Islam teaches Judas Iscariot was the one crucified instead of Jesus. Nation of Islam teaches, uh, the formal statement from that group reads that Jesus was a sinless prophet from Allah. In private conversation, members believe Jesus' birth resulted from an adulterous affair between Mary and Joseph because at that time, according to them, Joseph was already married to another woman. Jesus wasn't crucified, but was stabbed in the heart by someone from, I assume, Roman law enforcement. Jesus is still dead and buried in Jerusalem, the different biblical prophecies of Jesus' return refer not to Jesus, but to Master Wallace Fard Muhammad, founder and originator of Nation of Islam, or Elijah Muhammad, his successor, or to the current head of the organization, Louis Farrakhan. Hinduism teaches Jesus Christ is a teacher, a guru, or an avatar. Let me let me define that. An avatar 
in Hinduism means a manifestation of a deity in bodily form on earth. That bodily form might be human, that bodily form might be animalistic. But in Hinduism, an avatar is a manifestation of a deity, supposed deity, because Hinduism is polytheistic. Hinduism has millions and millions of gods and goddesses. Unlike Christianity, we are monotheistic. We have one God. His name is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would call this concept avatar. We would use the word incarnation. Uh, Hindus use the word avatar. Uh, I haven't seen the avatar movies, and there are more scheduled to be made. Uh, I haven't seen them because of their connection to Hinduism. And the creator of those films is James Cameron. And he admits that. He admits that connection to Hinduism. So according to Hinduism, Jesus is uh, an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu. Vishnu is one of three supreme gods in Hinduism. Jesus' death does not atone for sins, and he was not resurrected from the dead. Here, Krishna teaches Jesus, well, isn't important to this group. Jesus is usually thought of as an enlightened vegetarian teacher who taught meditation. I might add, if someone wishes to be a vegan or vegetarian, that's great. That's fine. You have the liberty in Christ to abstain from meat, and I think it's a good thing because that's more for me. But... Um, <laughs> But, it, you know, these, these people are really into this vegetarian thing. Um, he is not an incarnation of God. Some Krishna devotees even consider Jesus to actually be Krishna. All of us remember George Harrison uh, from the Beatles. He was one of the original Beatles. He created a song, released a song in 1970 called My Sweet Lord. I'm assuming most of us have heard that song, My Sweet Lord, still played. Uh, it became his signature song. Harrison had become a member of the Hare Krishna religion. So that song actually included the first 12 words of the Hare Krishna mantra. And the Lord, my sweet Lord, the Lord Harrison sang about wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Lord Krishna. Krishna is considered a Hindu god and the supposed eighth incarnation or avatar of the supreme Hindu god we mentioned earlier, Vishnu. Transcendental meditation. Both the Beatles and Beach Boys were once devoted to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and his meditation techniques. Transcendental meditation teaches Jesus is not uniquely God. Like all people, Jesus had a divine essence. Unlike most, though, he discovered it. Christ didn't suffer and couldn't suffer for sins. And one more, Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that Jesus Christ is not part of the historic Buddhist religion. Buddhists in the West today generally see Jesus as an enlightened teacher. And Buddhists in Asia believe Jesus is an avatar, but not God. The problem is none of these non-Christian religions and cults we have just mentioned, none of them can pass the Christological test. None of them teach a biblical Jesus and so are to be categorized and rejected as antichrist. Let me conclude with this. There's a common misunderstanding that conservatives are Christians. 
I am a conservative. I'm a Christian. And some people have the impression that all conservatives are Christians. If someone is a fiscal conservative, a social conservative, a political conservative, then that person is a Christian. No, that is a misunderstanding. Some conservatives are Christians. I'm one of them. And some conservatives are not Christians. Here's an example. Ben Shapiro, Daily Wire. Uh, Dennis Prager, uh, his videos on YouTube, Prager University, phenomenal stuff. Those men have a huge internet presence. Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager are both extremely comfortable around evangelicals, are very um, connected to evangelicals, uh, share some of the same values and worldview as evangelicals, but Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager are both Orthodox Jews and do not accept the statement I read earlier, the Christological statement about Jesus. They don't. Very sincere, very good men, brilliant men. Only a fool would even attempt to, to debate Ben Shapiro. He'll chew you up and spit you out in a matter of three minutes. But these men are not Christians. Conservatives, yes. Christians, no. Another example. Brandon Tatum is a social influencer. He is a former Tucson police officer. He is now a conservative political commentator, and I think that's fantastic. He has a YouTube channel that has 2.18 million subscribers. He's huge on the internet. And I haven't seen him on a consistent basis. I've seen some of his stuff periodically. And we would probably agree on most things. I can sit there and listen and go, yes, right, amen. Uh, from what I have seen, I actually appreciate most of his content. But what probably most people don't know, Brandon Tatum literally did a three-hour YouTube video categorically rejecting Jesus' deity. I heard it. He is adamant that Jesus is not God. In a theological sense, that's the attitude of Antichrist. And to complement things, he professes to be a Christian. He's not. Because he denies who Jesus is. Remember this, conservatism doesn't equate to Christianity. Yes, there's interchanging parts and there's some overlap, but they are not necessarily one and the same. If a person denies the Son, then he also denies the Father who is God. Our relationship to God himself is contingent on our opinion about and our relationship to God's Son, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In summation, if we're having a spiritual conversation with a Mormon, I've said often, Mormons are great people. My general practitioner is a phenomenal Mormon physician, a phenomenal man. If we're having a spiritual conversation with a Mormon, then don't get distracted discussing the Melchizedek priesthood, something Mormons like to discuss, something Mormons completely misunderstand. No, instead focus on the question, the Christological question, who is Jesus if we're having a spiritual conversation from someone from the Jehovah Witness Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, 
then don't bother discussing the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation 7. The 144,000 are the only people Jehovah Witnesses believe go to heaven. No, ignore that subject. Instead, focus on the question, who is Jesus? If we're having a spiritual conversation with a Muslim, don't waste time discussing the prophet Muhammad who founded the 1.8 million billion, 1.8 billion member religion called Islam. No. Focus on the Christological question, who is Jesus? If we're having a spiritual conversation with a Hindu, Buddhist, New Ager, or Neo-Pagan, then don't get sidelined discussing karma and reincarnation. Instead, focus on the question, who is Jesus? It's all contingent on Jesus. Nothing else matters unless that is right. Christianity is Jesus the Christ. Remove Christ from Christianity, and all we have left is anyanity. And that's not acceptable. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we know as a fact, emphatically, that he is the second member of the triune Godhead. He is the eternal God who, since Bethlehem, exists in human form. He was here on this earth. He was sinless. He was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. He was buried. He was resurrected, came back to life, ascended into heaven, and we believe with all our hearts He will return for us. Father, we thank You for Your Son. Without Him, we would have nothing. We would have no hope. We would have no forgiveness. We would have no future beyond the grave, and we're so grateful. Help us to be able to articulate what we believe about Jesus our own Christological position, help us to be able to defend it, to do so in love to those who need to hear it. And God, I just pray that we will commit our lives to waiting, uh, to watching, and to working for you and for him. And I thank you. In Jesus' special name I pray, amen. Amen.